Well, I have to confess, I'm always a little sad when we come to the end of one of these book studies. The, the old saying is certainly true that no one learns more than the teacher. I mean, I have the rare privilege, and it really is a privilege to be able to sit with these texts all week and, you know, read all the smart commentators and, you know, just kind of sit deeply with them. And so kind of feel like just when you're making friends with a letter like this, you know, it's, uh, it's time to move on, but it will be. Time to move on after this morning. So in this last reading in Philippians chapter four, there's obviously various thoughts. And so I've just tried to pull them together for us this morning around our epiphany theme and to think about elements of this passage as responses to the revelation of God in Christ. And we're gonna think this morning especially about Paul's, this idea, this command to think about these things, you note that phrase in your passage, and then note the phrase and put them into practice. So that's going to be our focus this morning. Think about these things and then put into practice what you've seen modeled. So beginning in verse four, a core way to think about uh, how to respond to the revelation of God in Christ is to rejoice in the Lord always. Now, these are one of those Pauline sayings where I think some people see Paul kind of wagging his finger, almost like a condescending command. Now, look, you unrejoicing people, you know, you need to rejoice in God. Rejoice in the Lord always. And the last thing I think Paul would want is to produce any sort of guilt or shame in somebody sitting in a room like this who might have had a little bit of a down week or might be feeling a little bit of shame or a little bit of guilt for something, the last thing he would have wanted was to pile onto that. And secondly, rejoicing in the Lord isn't kind of a casual happiness. You know, it's not like temperamental. You know, like some people just have a sort of more happy temperament. It's not about that. And it's certainly not about kind of having a brashness or a triumphalist arrogance towards life. You know, like, well, nothing bothers me, nothing touches me. It's none of those things. And of course, Christians have sorrows in this life, but I think this is what Paul's getting at. Our sorrows, our guilts, our shames, our dashed hopes, whatever, they occur in a completely different context. I think Paul sees it something like this. On the road to Damascus, I was apprehended by Christ. And from that conversion moment on, I've been trying to lay hold of, remember he said earlier in the letter, that for which Christ Jesus laid hold of me. And in that context where Christ is holding on to me and I'm holding on to him, I trust him. And in that trust, there is a possibility for rejoicing that wouldn't be there apart from that relationship. Now, every professional expositor knows that when you're trying to interpret these Pauline letters, it's kind of like listening to one side of a phone conversation, Right? You know, think about a friend or spouse or somebody, and you can hear them go, mm hmm, yeah, well, what about, right? And you're just hearing one side and you're wondering what's happening on the other side. Well, that's what it's like for Paul. So, to help you read between the lines and to understand why might he say, as a core response to the revelation of God in Christ, why is rejoicing important? And I just want to paint you a little bit of a historical mental picture here that the recipients of this letter, we're not an Orange County megachurch. Now, seriously, I want you to invite you to stop and think about that. Like, like don't, as much I adore the big churches around here. I know the pastors, they're wonderful. So I'm not picking on them. But like, just picture one of the Orange County megachurches. That's not, <laughs> that's not the kind of congregation this letter was written to. 
And you shouldn't think of uh, that this letter went to a, a church that was associated with, his, with the historic mainline denomination. No, here's what you have to picture. Probably a little group of people, not more than a few dozen, maybe scores at the most, surrounded by a hostile pagan culture who viewed them as a cult. Well, that's the word we would use today. I mean, maybe the proper word is sect, but they would have viewed them like we think of as this weird little cult. And it's possible they were feeling kind of hopeless in the midst of this. I mean, I picture them thinking, man, so few people are coming to faith. Everybody in Philippi rejects us. Maybe some of them were wobbling in their own commitment to Christ. They're certainly aware of being in a deep minority, probably filled with doubt and fear, and they needed encouragement. And so rather than a shame-based, wagging-your-finger imperative from Paul, it's, it's an opening, like a revelation and an invitation to find your way through all that by rejoicing in the Lord. Now, if you think about it from Paul's other letters and from the book of Acts and stuff, you know that Paul had faced everything they're facing and more. And he had personal knowledge of how to live through it. So that you see, for instance, in verse 12, if you look at your passage, he says, I know what it is to be in need. And that doesn't just mean money and food and clothes. It's in all the ways that he had felt naked and abandoned and beaten in his life. And he said, I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret. Now, I just want you to think about that phrase for a minute. I've learned the secret. And read into that phrase, please, the process of formation. Paul was learning the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry or living in plenty or in want. And so Paul is kind of linking that which he learned about contentment and how that contentment would produce in him joy. And he's suggesting that to this sort of beaten down little group of people in Philippi. And so his commitment, or sorry, his contentment is rooted in trusting in God. The, the, the phrase that I say to myself many times throughout the day, and especially if there's something difficult, a, a difficult phone call, a hard decision, an email that has to be written just right so that somebody doesn't misunderstand it. You know, those kind of things we all face all day, every day. When I face those things and I begin to feel a little disquiet in myself or a little anxiety or something, I, I frequently stop and say to myself, Todd, you're always safe in the kingdom of God. You don't have to make yourself safe here because normally making yourself safe is what leads to all kinds of fibbing, and manipulating and using others. But if you can find an a priori, right, a previously existing safety in the kingdom of God where you're content, well, then you can be present in a very different way. And I think this is something very important. When Paul says, think about these things, put them into practice, I think that is a very important spiritual practice as a response to the revelation of God in Christ. And then verse five, and again, I think this kind of moves a little bit, maybe not. Again, it's hard to read between the lines with Paul, but maybe there's a bit of a movement here from joy to contentment to then the possibility, verse five, of letting your gentleness be evident to all. Now, the Greek word gentleness there really means moderation, but we use that word differently in English today, except for if you would think of this, moderate yourself. 
Think of living in such a way as that you're moderating yourself. Well, that probably raises the question, why would anybody do that? <laughs> Aren't we supposed to be discovering and celebrating and lifting up a self? Why would anybody moderate themselves? And so moderation then, if we think about that in this context, means something like forbearance. It would mean something like a humble patience or a steadfastness. Or best yet, I think for me, the willingness to yield personal rights in order to show consideration for others. Now can you see moderation? So I moderate myself, which is to say, I, I yield where I can, where appropriately, my rights, in order to show consideration for others. And I think this, again, is not just temperamental, you know, that some people are more sort of naturally inclined to gentleness or something. I think it's not that kind of thing. For Paul, this is a core Christian trait. Again, I think Paul gets a bad rap, especially just a little bit of quick intellectual history here, especially beginning with sort of German liberalism after, and this isn't picking on Germans, it just happened to come from Germany, uh, sort of German liberalism after World War II up to today, so a period of 70 years or so, Paul's gotten pretty well bashed. He gets bashed for all kinds of stuff. But it's that same Paul who said, I was among you like a nursing mother. It's Paul who said, I was among you as a servant. And no brash, woman-hating, religion-defiling person could have written 1 Corinthians 13. Now again, I just want you to pause and think, what kind of person, if what we read in the Gospels this morning is even remotely true, that it's out of the abundance of one's heart that they speak, or in this case, write, what kind of heart could have written 1 Corinthians 13? You just think about this, the, the state of the heart that conceived of that little bit of literature that has stood the test of time as one of the most celebrated little bits of literature for 2,000 years. That, that didn't come out of the blue. That came out of a heart that had been cultivated and that had moderated itself such that it could write the kinds of things that it said. Well, love is patient. Love is kind. and Love is long-suffering. And love doesn't demand its own way. Well, why wouldn't love demand its own way? Because it's moderating itself. And then moving on, verse 6, Paul says then, this, and again, maybe this is the other side of the coin of rejoice always. He says, don't be anxious about anything. And again, this is, don't see this as a finger wagging, you know, slapping your hand if you've ever been anxious. It's not that. It's, it's like don't hold, don't hold on to anxiety as a way of doing life. Do you get that? Like, like don't make anxiety your sort of go-to place where that's, that's sort of just the way you've, you've learned to do life. And again, if we could put ourselves in the, in the position of this little group of people in Philippi, so they're this little sect or cult. Everything in the surrounding culture is cynical and abusive towards them, right? So they got all that going on. And then all that happens even in a wider context of the capriciousness, the randomness, the instability of the gods. The way ancient peoples lived was something like this. I know something bad is happening. I know something bad is probably just around the corner. Something bad is probably about to happen to me. And they lived in the fear that we don't even know why because there's all these gods and one of them has to be ticked off at me. Seriously, this is the way they lived. So they lived in perpetual anxiety. They lived in a state of anxiety of really serious things like, well, you know, maybe my grandmother's going to die because one of the gods is mad, or maybe my baby will be born and not live because one of the gods are mad. That, that's the kind of fear they lived in pretty constantly. And again, we can almost not understand this at all. 
the sense of deserving fate that would come from the gods. So again, Paul's not saying here that Christians never suffer or that Christians never have legitimate distresses. Again, just think of some of Paul's other writings. Remember when he said, I bear in my body the weight of all these churches. You know, Paul might've been the kind of guy who we said his life was cut short by the burdens that he carried his whole life. You know how we joke about our presidents graying in office? Like, you know, you look at a young Barack Obama coming in at whatever he was, I know he was young, wasn't he late 40s or something? And then you look at him eight years later and you're like, oh my God, what do we do to that guy, right? <laughs> that kind of thing. Well, Paul bore that kind of thing times 10 in his body and persecutions and beatings and mistreatments and being ill. But he's just saying, somehow, I came to understand that our concerns as Christ followers happen in a completely different context. They don't happen with reference to the random gods. They happen in the context of a relationship with a loving, reliable, consistent God. Did you catch that? Not capricious, not random, loving, reliable, consistent. And this is why you have those famous words in Matthew 6 where Jesus said, don't worry about your life, what you eat or what you drink. Your heavenly father knows you need those things, right? You know this famous passage. And then Jesus gives it its bottom line by saying, so here's what you do. Seek first the kingdom and its righteousness and don't worry, all these other things will be given to you as well. Again, that's not an invitation to apathy or to inaction. But if you look at verse six, it's an invitation to prayer, Prayer meaning that when you begin to feel anxiety or, or you begin to feel joy being replaced by something else, then what you do is you as an apprentice of Jesus, as a disciple of Christ, you as an ambassador for kingdom, you just begin to talk to God about what you and he are doing together. I don't remember when it was or how many years ago. It was a long time ago. But I remember Dallas Willard first saying that to me. Well, Todd, you know, prayer is just you and God talking, talking about what you and he are doing together. Again, that'll just frequently come to my mind. Maybe I'm walking up to a building for a speaking engagement or something. And I'll just say, okay, Jesus, here we go, me and you. Let's go do our work together. Seriously, I pray that kind of prayer all the time. Okay, Jesus, me and you. What are we doing here together? What about this particular audience? What about this particular set of material? How does this material work with, with this audience? What, do you, you know, what, what are we doing here, Lord? I do it all the time in a very sort of playful, boyish, childlike way that, okay, Jesus, me and you. Let's, let's go do our work together. And then verse eight, getting at the heart of what I wanted to say this morning. Finally, he says, brothers and sisters, I invite you to look at your passage here with me. Whatever is true, I just want you to let your, let your eyes fall on these words and let whatever thoughts or feelings come to you. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, or lovely, or admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Now we need to stop here for a moment and wonder what this Greek term think means. And it of course, of course includes cognition, but it can't be, it's not just cognition. It's almost like an accounting word. It means to calculate or to add up or to stack up. And so it means something like make a conscious effort to stock your minds with these things. Like sort of create an inventory in your mind of these things and reflect on them. 
And as you do, you'll begin to discover a change in your mind. And your mind will begin to affect not just your thoughts, but your emotions. And as those things start being affected, your heart and soul and will will begin to be affected too. Now, I I don't think Paul could have ever imagined the kind of unpleasantness that we live with today, right? I mean, we are just surrounded by unpleasantness of every kind. And our media constantly shoves things our way. Now, I want you to look at your passage again. That are untrue, ignoble, unjust. Greek term there for right um, means something like just. Unjust, impure, ugly, unworthy, shoddy, and condemnable. That's what's shoved at us all day, every day. And Paul's just saying something wise, like you can't feed your mind on those things and simultaneously be a consistent follower of Jesus. It it just kind of won't work. And so the invitation that stands before us here then is to cultivate a transformed heart. So again, thinking of our gospel reading this morning where Jesus says their heart is far from me. Right, And that from such a heart come evil thoughts and murder and adultery, all these uglinesses, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. And so what we're invited into as we put kind of Jesus and Paul together here is to cultivate possibilities to think about these things. And I just want you to have huge freedom in that. That could be a museum. It could be, like for me, I... um, my favorite grounds of uh, retreat centers is Sarah in Malibu. I just love to walk on that bluff and walk to the stations of the cross. And I'm just, it's, I just love the grounds there. It's a way to just cultivate the possibility for noticing beauty of the Pacific Ocean or you know, the gardens that holy people have taken care of for generations. And that's the invitation here. If you don't actually cultivate the possibilities for doing that, the default positions are so strong is it will be constantly sucked into them. I think, and I just mean this as as a bit of wisdom, so, you know, kind of take it for what it's worth, is don't think that you can sit neutral. I don't think you can sit neutral. The giant sucking sound into that which is ugly and ignoble is so strong that all of us, the strongest of us, would get sucked in that direction if we don't cultivate the possibilities for thinking about these things. And then lastly, Paul says, whatever you've learned or received or heard or seen in me, put into practice. Now again, just I want you to think about the logic of the letter again. You know, in the first part of the letter, Paul talks about his own hardships and how he's worked through it. In chapter two, he lifts up Jesus as as the unspeakably amazing one who didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but let go of it and became a servant. Paul says in chapter three, I then have let go of the things in my life that might've been counted as gain so that I could become a servant. And so what he's saying here is not boastful. See, again, this is where we have a hard time reading these Pauline letters. We sit here this morning with 2,000 years of Christian heroes, of women and men who are, who are standing examples of what it means to follow, be a follower of Jesus. This little group of people would have never seen one. They would have had no embodied notion, no model, no example, no template 
No person for whom they could esteem and say, yes, I want to walk after Christ like them. And so Paul's just simply saying, look, here's what Jesus did. I'm trying to live into that. If there's anything you've seen or heard or received from me, well, put those things into practice. And the result is, verse 9, that the God of peace will be with you. And this is the Emmanuel promise that goes from the garden all the way to the book of Revelation that a life is available to human beings that is with God, with hyphen God. That kind of life stands before humanity as an invitation. To put it in Jesus's words in Revelation, I stand at the door of your heart and knock. Remember that famous phrase? If anybody will open the door to me, I'll come in and have a relationship with you. I'll sup with you. We, you, could, you then can live a with God life because there was no better way in the ancient world to talk about intimacy of relationship than eating together. That was a withness that was profound. And so a with God life stands open to anybody who would like it. So finally then, as we come to the end of this letter, as a response to the revelation of God in Christ, Paul's just simply saying, keep on thinking about and doing what is morally and spiritually excellent. Center your mind on good things and put into practice that which you can learn from Jesus's model, chapter two, Paul's model in chapter three, and therein lies the path to a with God life, to being a disciple of Jesus and to having the ability then to be an ambassador of the kingdom on the basis of such a model. Well, during these weeks of Epiphany, we've said that sort of tongue-in-cheek, in quotes, we've been ending these thoughts about these passages with an, in quotes, altar call. And so this morning, as we come to our moment of quiet, I want to encourage you to wonder, what do you most want from life? Just that very simple question. What do you most want from life? And as you think of that, is there places where you need amendment of life and where you might find the need for amendment of life? You might think, how can I think about these things and put the model of Jesus and Paul into practice?